Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Today with my show co-host Mitch, uh, we'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was stolen and that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. My guest today is an alcoholic who's recovering with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I'd like to welcome Rod to the show. Hi, Rod. Hi, Bill. Um, great to have you on the show. It's um, great to be here. Yeah. Um, so, Rod, the, the format of the show is we usually talk about uh, growing up and the things that influenced us and, and I guess where you came into contact with alcohol and where that took you. So, do you want to sort of start off by talking about your early life and, you know, life as a kid and the things that you enjoyed and... Uh, how life was for you. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, um, yeah. my name's Rod, and I'm an alcoholic and gratefully sober today, and um, yeah, really happy to be on Radio 3CR. Um, yeah, I was born in um, East Malvern and grew up in, in Moorabbin, and um, I had an older brother and eventually uh, an old, a younger sister who was nine years my junior, and um, come from a working-class family. Dad worked hard, worked a bit of night shift. Mum was a uh, stay-at-home mum, and she cared for the family. And it was a very loving family. And um, and yeah, my my dad, he wasn't a drinker. He'd get a couple of bottles of beer in at Christmas time just in case someone called over and he was able to um, offer them a beer. And um, and mum, uh, her drinking, um, she'd have the bottle of Pims. It was like a trophy. It lived on top of the Calvinator. And they'd come down at Christmas time with the next door neighbour, and they'd they'd play ladies and um, have a pims and lemonade, and so you know, and so booze in our family didn't play a role whatsoever. Um, I um, as a as a little child, um, I became known as um, Good Little Rodney because I was the one there who was always to help the neighbours, and uh, you know, I used to hear stories about taking in milk bottles and I'd put them in a trolley and cut them in for the neighbours and they'd run out and, and scream, leave the bottles alone, they'll break. And, and, um, but I was just helping out. And as I grew older, I, um, I was always the one who would be mowing the lawns or helping Dad paint the house. And, and so, yeah, it was good little Rodney. And I've got to be, you know, tell you the truth, I, I didn't like being good little Rodney, but I didn't know how not to be good little Rodney. And... Um, and life kept, you know, just kept going on. And yeah, you know, I was um, I was very comfortable if I had a cricket bat in my hand or a footy, but I felt a little, um, a little bit out of place in the in the school grounds and um, spent a bit of time in the library. And um, you know, I played played footy, played cricket, um, mainly local, just around the local area. And I ended up coaching um, kids at footy and cricket, became a life member of the footy and the cricket team um, or cricket club. And um, 
And during, you know, when I finished high school, I started part-time studies and it took me six years to qualify, which would normally take people four years because I was, I started spending a little bit of time in the, um, in the hotel in, before, instead of going to Chutes. But, you know, life was okay. And, um, you know, I'd met a girl when I was 16. We ended up getting married at 21. And, um, and booze wasn't you know, a big part of our life. Sure, it was omnipresent and it was mainly associated around footy clubs and cricket clubs and, and barbecues and 21st and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so did you, um, were you attracted to alcohol early? No, not really. It, well, it wasn't, wasn't around. And when yeah. at the footy club, um, it was there. And, um, and it was really, it was only a weekend affair. But I did find myself, Bill, when I drank, I generally drank to excess. Right, yeah. And, um, and, I, and, and that became a part of what, how it was. And, um, and, um, but it, I wasn't getting into any mischief. You know? mm. What about after a win? You know, did you have more of an impetus to maybe drink? Uh, you know, if your teammates were and you were all up for it? Well, of course, you've got to celebrate. And um, any, any reason to, have, to hang one on. And, um, and, of course, you'd celebrate the win. And invariably, there'd be the barrel left over from the night before. And as you cleaned up the club rooms the next morning, yeah. there was a PSM. Yeah. And when I was in my early 20s, that was okay. But when it was in my mid-20s, and the other people who were there were in their late teens, maybe early 20s, and I was the older one, it should have given me some clue that, that alcohol had been, it was creeping into my life. Yeah. So what sort of effect did it have on you? Uh, I, I, at, a, at a conscious level, probably nothing. Yeah. I um I was in deep denial. I um I I I didn't you know because there was no nobody ever tapped me on the shoulder and said hey listen you're in trouble with this stuff. Yeah. So because no one ever tapped me, I just. Yeah, you know, I muck up on the weekends, yep. go back to go to work on the Monday, and nobody knew what I got up to on the weekend. So, you know, I was I was sort of, if you like, getting away with it. So at a conscious level, I didn't think there was anything abnormal about my behaviours. Yeah. And did you hear stories, or did you see mates potentially acting up on the drink, and you know, think anything of it? Oh yes, of course. I'd I'd hear the stories. Um, you know, we of course, yeah. Guys always talk about what the others did, and um, and um, but I never heard stories uh, about my behaviour, and um, I didn't. I, they obviously would talk to me. I, I I do remember one time I was um I was in the uh, men's in men's toilet, and um, it was we were getting changed to go out and play footy, and that day, on that occasion. I couldn't play, but I was, I'd volunteered to be the umpire, the boundary umpire. And the coach, um, someone said to the coach, oh, where's, where's Rod? And the coach said, oh, I don't know, he's probably at the back having a beer. And and I was in the toilet and I heard this and, I, and it didn't really sink in that, hey, listen, they really understand that I'm in a bit of trouble with this stuff. So, But I just ignored it. Yeah. So what did your girlfriend think? Or was that normal? Well, we, you know, when we when we were a girlfriend and boyfriend, we used to hang around the um, mainly go to 
dancers and but all the other guys who were boys and girls in our late teens were all doing the same stuff and um and it was around about weekends but nobody really saw um, what i was doing in private and um it wasn't so much what i was you know i'd sometimes i'd you know be coming home from work because i rarely drank during the day um and, you know, I see it today, one of the reasons why I didn't drink during the day, because to pick up a drink at lunchtime would be absolutely torturous, just having one or two. Yeah. But sometimes on the way home from work, I'd call in at a, at a hotel and just have one. And then I'd go on my way and might go somewhere else and just have another one. And, um, and, that, should have, and that, that should have been a clue to me that that wasn't normal. But, yeah, you know, I was in total denial. Yeah. And um, what kind of person were you like when you drank? And were you a different person at home versus when you were out in public drunk? Uh, you'd probably have to ask my uh, my <laughs> wife that, Mitch. <laughs> I thought I was okay. I really did. And I thought, you know, um, sure, there was times um, when I, um, I, I know now that I, I, I thought I was always present for the family. But I wasn't there. I was there physically, but mentally I wasn't. And uh, but you know the the disease of alcoholism is a disease of denial. Denial, and the, the acronym for denial is don't even notice I am lying to myself. Mm. And I was deep in it, and I did not have a clue. Did not have a clue. Mm. So um, what about your friends? Did your friends? notice anything different about you or were you just drinking you know on the surface the same as them towards the end they certainly did yeah. um and uh, there was one occasion i was um, my wife and and he and this chap's wife were um they were out on a girl's night out and he knocked on my door and i um, it was a wednesday and he knocked on my door and i greeted him and and I was down in the back room. The kids were off doing whatever they were doing that day, that that, that evening. And and he said to me, uh, oh, g'day, Pete. I said to him, g'day, Pete, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, actually, I've come to talk to you about... And I had a panic and of something going. And he said, and then one of the kids came out of the room. He said, oh, listen, I'll see you later on. But he'd come yeah. to talk to me about my drinking. And his mother was a re- recovering alcoholic, so he knew a bit. So yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes. Um, so how did it affect your work? Um, amazing, Bill. I um, I started as a um, straight from high school, and, um, and the the one company I worked for for 25 years, I kept my head down. I worked exceptionally hard. And um, and and I kept getting promotions, and it really baffled me why they, because you know, it just the way it was. Because I wasn't I wasn't causing any trouble. I didn't want anyone to have an excuse to point the bone at me. Mm. And because I was doing exceptionally, you know, I was I was achieving you know good results, and I kept getting these promotions. But towards the end. I think that I knew the game was up. Um, I um, there was there was some people who had been sniggering, um, 
There was uh, one, we used to have a Christmas party and word got back to me that some blokes, young blokes were talking about, well, Rod didn't go to the Christmas party because he'd been asked not to attend. And I heard that, but it didn't sink in. Mm. And um, so things were starting to creep in. And was that true? That wasn't... Wasn't true, or it wasn't. Well, uh, hey, it was a long time ago, Mitch. It was true. I didn't go to the party. Yeah. yeah. And it was true. Probably I didn't go to the party because I knew I'd screw up. But no, I hadn't been asked not to attend. Okay. So yeah, the cunning of the alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find it um, maybe a bit deceiving that you kept getting the promotions and your drinking was in the same place, but you felt like you were excelling? So. Well, it, it baffled me. Yeah. Why are they doing this? And 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 in the end, I um, as I said, I I, I think I, I saw, even though not at a conscious level, but somewhere, that my time was about to come, that I'd be asked to front up or shape up, and so I left that organisation. I went out and started to start my own business, and because I they, I'd been asked if I'd consider moving outside of Australia, but um, you know, our kids were, were only they were growing up and I needed to be to stay home and be the good little father, good little Rodney, if you like. And, um, and so I did. I started, stayed in Australia and started my own business. Mm. Um, did your family, um, you know, say your brother or your sister, notice your drinking and, and make any comments or have any concerns about it? Um, my, um, my mother, she, um, she was a, um, you know, a terrific lady. She really was. She was very loving and, but she had two brothers who died of this disease and, um, in their, one was in his early thirties, the other one was in his early forties and I hadn't had much to do with them. But, um, but, uh, my mother had a, uh, or the family had a, a medical dictionary, and the medical dictionary would be often on the um, on the lounge room coffee table, opened up at alcoholism, and I'd see it and I'd slam it shut. Now I don't know whether that was always open there or it was just one time, but in my mind, you know, she was she wasn't a friend of mine because she had started to challenge what I was doing in some way. So, um, and my brother and my sister apparently. And now I've only just recently heard this, that um, only a month or so before I got into recovery, they had a they were saying, what are we going to do with him? What are we because of my physical appearance uh, had changed dramatically, and, you know, over over that time. And so, but they no, they didn't tap me on the shoulder. They had a meeting, but they they were baffled as to what to do with do with me. Yeah. Most people are. That's right. <laughs> uh, okay, well, so we might take a short break there. I've got a song. It's called Big Evil by Alicia Salerno from um, Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
from every corner of the land. Womankind, arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. And on 3CR 855, get your slice of local film action every Thursday at 11am. For half an hour, get a dose of what's new. And who's who in the art of film. Join Annie and Mohammed for Showreel on Thursday, 11am, 3CR 855 on your AM dial. See you then. Back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on the AM dial, and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, you can find us on your preferred podcast platform, or just search 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone or email. Uh, today I'm talking with Rod, and we're talking about alcoholism and his recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so Rod, we'll talk a bit about where your drinking took you and the sort of impact it had on your life and, and I guess the people around you. So you, you said you married at 21, you're drinking from about 16 through those years. So was your wife concerned about the amount you were drinking? Yeah, um, I'm not quite sure when she started to become concerned Um um, you know, in the beginning, but I, I, I can pinpoint um, eight years before I got into recovery. Um, uh, it, there were things which obviously weren't playing out right in the family. Um, the children were starting to grow up. They were, you know, in their young teens. And, oh, yeah, young teens. And um, my wife um, knew the chap that I'd played cricket with. He is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she went to see him um, to get a bit of advice on what what she could do about me and my drinking. And uh, his his advice to her was for her to go off to Elanon and allow me to keep on with my drinking. Um, and the Elanon program was to teach her to get her to get an understanding that if an alcoholic wants to drink then that's the business of the alcoholic. If they want to stop, then that's the business of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for that, the chap that my wife was talking to, for that he was responsible. And he can't save the alcoholic. So my wife went off to Al-Anon for the eight years um, before I got into recovery. So that's a a time I can peg into the, um, the timeline. Yeah. So did that change the way you drank or change your life at all, her going to Eleanor? 
Well, not not at all, Bill. I um I remember she used to hide the um, Elanon books. Oh, they weren't hidden, but they were, she'd keep them in the um in a cupboard in the bathroom. And I remember opening in a cupboard once, and I saw this book. It was um, called One Day at a Time, um, Odat. And I saw it, and I looked at it. And I thought, what's that got? To, what's that doing there? And I slid it back in, and didn't take much notice. Because I had other important, more important things to do, yeah. You know? <laughs> I was a very busy and important man, and um, and so I remember it, but it did not impact on the way that I didn't change my behaviours. Mm. Yeah, I I really didn't. So mm. that's not the first time you saw a book relating to alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous, and you slammed that other one, Chad. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, it, I just anybody who challenged me about that. As I understand it today, I just ignore them. You know, the yeah. same. There was a, there was a chap, twelve, um, eleven months before I got in the recovery. He was a, um, he was a very high member of the Victorian Police Force. In that stage, he was in charge of um, drug, alcohol, and vice reporting to the commissioner. And he said to me in the January, I was down the local RSL, and he said to me. Right, if you keep drinking the way you're drinking, you're going to be dead within 12 months. And I just laughed at him and, and, belly, and went on with it and thinking, what would you know? And uh, so, yeah, that was another incident where someone did, you know, tap me, but I ignored it. Yeah, yeah. So do, that's an interesting thing, talking about the, you know, what, what happens if you drink. So my understanding is there's, there's three avenues for alcoholics. So... If they yeah. keep drinking, what are they? Well, if, you, if, you, if an alcoholic continues to drink, there's three, three possibilities. They, they can either get into recovery and stop drinking, or else they'll end up in an institution. Well, there's four possibilities. Recovery, yeah. get into an institution, or be locked up for causing an act, which is the law is going to lock them up, or they'll die. And that's the fact. Mm. One of the truisms of alcoholism, all alcoholics will eventually stop drinking. <laughs> it's just that some of us are lucky enough to do it while we're still alive. And I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah, yeah, you're right. If you didn't enter into recovery, which one of those four paths do you think you would have ended up on? Well, I have no doubt, uh, Mitch, um, uh, the death. Um, what happened to me in the end, um, I was... <laughs> It was no, no special occasion. I was um, it was a sunny, could have been a rainy day, windy day, but it was a day. And I was down the back shed, and where I spent a lot of time. And I was down the back shed during this day, uh, making a lot of sawdust because I spent a lot of time down there, not doing anything, just cutting through good timbers and making a lot of noise. And you know, I had the the bar the beer fridge down there, and um, and it got later in the evening and I said to my wife why don't you let me have a good night's sleep and you go park yourself elsewhere in the, in the house and um, she did that and um, and I went to bed and a couple of hours later I woke up feeling a bit crook in the stomach and headed to the bathroom the ensuite and coughed up an enormous amount of blood into the mm. toilet bowl and I cleaned it up as best I could and as I wandered back to the bed, I passed the wardrobe and slid that across and reached inside for a really nice Stanley K2 
cask of Stanley Moselle, uh, Chevrolet, and uh, proceeded to pour myself a drink. And if, um, and so, yeah, coughing up the blood, and I still went, the first thing I went back, that mental obsession. So, yeah, I was as mad as a cut snake. Anyway, I woke up a couple of hours later, didn't quite make it to the bathroom, and... Um, and made it crashed around the bedroom. Wife came up to see what was going on, and she called the Clayton Hospital. Ambos carted me off to Clayton, and I was admitted into the intensive care ward. That was a Friday, and on a Saturday, the doctors rang home, and they um, their advice to the family was they'd be best to get into the hospital fairly quickly because they didn't think I was going to get out of there alive. You know, I had to be resuscitated on the Friday and again on the Saturday. They didn't think I'd pull out. So I have no doubt in my mind that if I went crazy again and thought that I could go back to just that one drink, it would. one was always too many and a hundred is not enough that you know, I'd go down into the pits. Of, and you know. Just to better understand your mind state in that time and your relationship with alcohol... Do you remember what was going through your head when you went for that Chablis, being in the pain that you were? You know, why why did you reach for that? I, I don't remember anything, but I have I, my understanding is today is the mental obsession I had with the booze. The relationship I had with alcohol was just so strong. Um, it, I wouldn't call it a loving relationship, a caring relationship. It was just a relationship. It was about, at that time, the only authentic relationship I had in my life. I didn't have a relationship, a truly authentic relationship with myself or with anyone else in my life because a booze has dominated at that stage. And so that was the relationship I had. So why wouldn't I go back to, you know, what was going to be the fixer. The abnormal had just become the normal in my life. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny, the progression, isn't it? It slowly, slowly becomes normal. Yeah, it didn't start that way. um, My my first drink was, you know, um, my very first drink was on a school excursion. It was during my matric year year 12 for those who don't understand the trick um, and I was on at the snowy mountains and I had a glass of cream de month and lemonade and um, followed by a number of green cans and that allowed me to bring up my evening's dinner and I was able and then I got carted off back to my room anyway the upshot of that first drink was the headmaster and when we got back to school he called called me in because I was a prefect of the school, you know, good little Rodney. Mm. And um, he called me in because I should have been looking after the children or the other boys and girls. And um, he called me in, stood me up, stripped off my prefect's pocket, ripped off my badge and said, get out of here. And I went out and I went out and I and into the school ground and the boys and girls who sat on the cool seat you know, the Rat Pack, who I always wanted to belong with, they rose and approached. And all of a sudden I felt as though I fitted in. And I'm not quite sure whether I chased that feeling of fitted in, but that was a relationship, my very early memory of having a real relationship with alcohol. 
and it did progress from there. My, yeah. my consumption increased and my condition decreased. Yeah, strangely enough. <laughs> well. Okay, well, listen, we might take another short break. We've got another song here, and this one's called Murder in the Dark uh, by Rustin, uh, featuring Alicia Salerno, who was our first song. Uh, and again, it's courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.
Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio. Live streaming on 3cr.org.au and now uh, on your Community Radio Plus app. Um, today we're talking with Rod and we're talking about alcoholism and his recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so Rod, we've heard about your drinking life, but do you want to tell us a bit about, um, you know, you talked about having to go to hospital because of medical condition caused by your drinking and it was there that somebody approached you about, um, you know, doing something about it. So... Can you tell us about getting into AA and um, what it's like, you know, sort of going to AA for the first time? Yeah, sure, Bill. Um, yeah, I was, as I said before, I was um, slammed into the um, Clayton Hospital. And um, and the day after, I was there for 20 days, and I don't remember too much about what the goings on, um, you know, there was... There was lots of doctors and nurses, and, and um, I spent most of it in intensive care. But the day after I got out, a bloke knocked on my door. And the chap who knocked on my door, um, it was the same guy that my wife had been to see eight years prior, who advised her to go off the island and let me keep on with me drinking. Anyway, he knocked on the door this day because he thought the time was right. And I said to him, God, g'day, what do you... What are you doing here? And he said, oh, actually, I hear you've been a bit unwell. And I remember saying to him, yeah, I've been a little bit crook, but I'm okay now. And he, he looked at me and very unkindly said, if you don't mind me saying so, you look absolutely terrible. And I'm thinking, crikey, a bloke hasn't had a drink for three, nearly three weeks, and you're telling him I look really crook. But he, he invited himself in, and as we went down the passage, he said to me, as you know, I don't drink alcohol. And, and yeah, you know, I'd known this bloke for 25 odd years. We played a lot of cricket together. He'd been president of the club. I'd taken over from him as president. And um, and, and he didn't drink, and that was his business. And uh, so anyway, we sat down and had a cuppa, and um, he said to me, he told me a bit about his story. He did the classic 12-step job on me, as I understand it today. He told me what it was like when he was drinking, the antics that he got up, Harry got into his into recovery, and what his life was like that day. And as I said, I'd known him for a long time, and I liked the way he, he went about his business. And so he carried the message to me the day after I got out of the hospital, and that's where my journey in, in recovery began. Um, uh, so do you want to talk about going to your first meeting and, and the effect that had on you? Yeah, sure. You know, the... The first meeting I went to was um, just locally, um, you know, well, 
one thing, you know, someone asked me to go somewhere, and being a chronic people pleaser, I put my hand up and said yes. And he picked me up and at 7.30 on the following Tuesday night, and we went to a local meeting. And I walked in there, and... Um, and 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 blokes, they came up to me and put the hand of friendship out and said welcome, and that really impressed me. And um, and you gave me a, a a cup of coffee, but you only gave me half a cup of coffee at the first meeting. I thought, gee, dirty rotten lousy <laughs> bunch, <laughs> only half a cup of coffee. But I had the shakes, and uh, you knew I couldn't handle much more. And you said just sit down and listen, and I did listen, and. Um, and I don't remember too much about that first meeting. I was um, still a bit foggy. But after the meeting, the guys, they corralled me and they got me into a circle and you started talking about feelings. You asked me, how do you feel about this and feel about that? And I didn't have a clue. Really, I didn't. But you also said, just keep coming back. And again, I was, that really impressed me. One, the hand of friendship, welcome, and the just keep coming back. And I have just kept coming back. So that was my first experience. Yeah. And so you, you talk about um, people saying, keep coming back. I suppose not a lot of people liked your company. Well, they didn't. I, I'd be, I, I'd go somewhere, sure. I'd, you know, my wife would be invited and, and I was just, I was this significant other who'd go tag along. And, um, and, and I, I, I got, as I know it today, I wasn't much company, so... You know, there was one time a wedding a invitation came home to the family, uh, to our place, and it was from her side of the family. It was an invitation for her to go to this wedding. And I was just left <laughs> off. Hey, it didn't worry me because I could stay home and do drink. what I needed to do. Yeah, yeah exactly, drink. So uh, that's the way life was yeah. in those days. Yeah. I suppose that's a, a bit of a contradiction between you being a people pleaser and also people not really wanting your company in certain situ- situations as well. Yeah, and that, that people pleasing thing, Mitch, was very significant part of my, my whole being. I was always out there to help others. And as I understand it today, what that really did for me was deflect me from having a good hard look at me because I was so busy helping everyone else. But, of course, you didn't appreciate all the hard work that I put into helping you in your life, and that really nicked me off, and mm-hmm. that gave me a resentment. And I had, you know, we talked about those relationships with, with alcohol. Well, I had lots of relationships also, didn't know it then, but I do now with my resentments, and I would cuddle them up, and 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 so they were, they were killing me as well. And how did recovery help you deal with those kinds of feelings of resentment if someone didn't reciprocate the mm. uh, niceties that you would? Show well, them? when I when I got into recovery, I um, I attended a lot of meetings and I met um, you know other fellow alcoholics who seemed to be getting on with their life and they were sharing with me what they were getting up to and um, and, and I, th- I got the inkling because you know, there's, there's men and women who, who I'd hear their stories about it, what it was like when they were drinking and then I got to meet them and talk to them afterwards and I got really confused because you were telling me one thing and I was seeing something else and all of a sudden I realised that you're the same person and something had changed and what had changed is you were in recovery. And so if you could do it and you could change your life and have 
happy, smiling faces and people around you than it was possible for me. And so I did. I just kept coming back because you seemed to accept me and I always wanted to be accepted. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's part of people-pleasing. It's trying to influence people to like you. It's yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, a, a little bit different from... I didn't so much wanted you to like me, but please don't dislike me yeah. and talk about me behind my back. Yeah. But you're right, so yeah. same, same. Yeah. Only a little bit different for me as I have it. But, uh, yeah, that acceptance. Yeah, didn't want to please people. Didn't want to displease them, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's a... It's a, it's a bad, it's a subtle, yeah, mm. it's a bad way. Um, so your drinking stopped. So did your relationship with your family change? Uh, it took some time, Bill. Took, yeah. took a lot of time. Um, yeah, I'd because um, when I was drinking, you know, the, the 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 kids not so much. At this stage, the kids were um, eighteen and and twenty, and they were, they were busy with their life. But for my wife, things really dramatically changed. When, when I was drinking, she knew exactly where I was. <laughs> I was either down the back shed making sawdust, down the RSL, or at the footy club or the cricket club, or I'd be at work. When I was drinking, I was going going out meeting all these strange people she didn't know. And I'd come home and say, oh, Harry was there last night, and this was nice seeing him. And so that was somewhere I... And I spent a lot of time outside the family. I wasn't drinking, but there was also some confusion happening. And eventually I settled down and we were able, I was able to become a father and a husband. Uh, but it took time. Mm. It took time. Yeah. And the impact at work? Um, well, this stage, by this stage I left the large organisation two years earlier. And, and I had a, um, a small business... And business wasn't too good, Bill. I had um, boys and girls, young people working for me, and I was paying them at a higher rate than I was charging my customers, which isn't a good way to run a business. So. <laughs> <laughs> but again, part of that chronic people pleasing. Mm. You know, had, they, they thought I was great. I'd wash their cars for them if they yeah. wanted me to. <laughs> and so I, I didn't, I didn't. It took me a long time to get back into what you call um, normal type employment, paid employment. Mm. And I just fumbled along probably about five years. Yeah. Mm. So how did it improve, you know, once once you started to understand and be, I guess, relaxed with yourself, um, did things improve then as you sort of accepted yourself and could yeah. move forward? Yeah, it, it did. I... Um, because I, I, I was able to be there for others. And um, along the way, you know, because I'd always been there for to help other people and and you didn't respond appropriately, I, I learned a very significant part in my journey was to learn that the only person I could have any real influence over is me. And I um, need to give people the grace to live their life the way they're meant to live their life. And there's a, um, there's a card in, in AA, it's headed up tolerance, and part of that card it says, um, you know, the bigness to allow others to be happy in their way, not necessarily in my way. And until the journey went from the head to the heart, a long journey, only 12 inches, <laughs> but it was a long journey, until I really learned that, then nothing greatly improved. 
And once I did that, then I was able to then, you know, by this time I was starting to have a relationship, one with a power greater than myself, and two, a relationship with me. And by being able to have those two very important relationships, I was able to have a relationship with other people in my life. So, But it took time. My, my recovery hasn't been of the microwave variety. Yeah. It's been a very slow burn. Yeah. And I'm yeah. grateful for that. Yeah. So do you want to talk a bit about your relationship with your kids? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a mixed relationship there, Bill. The oldest son, he's um, he's married with uh, four children, which um, means I'm a you know, grandfather. Who, of course, they've never seen me drink. They're you know, they're still at primary school, and um, and we have um, we have a, a a good father and son relationship. It really is, and um, I have a relationship with um, my grand my daughter-in-law, and and the kids. They think that you know, pop rod. Is doing okay, yeah. And he's okay. They like hanging out in the shed with me. And this afternoon, I'll have one the one of the boys at home, and he'll be out there helping me make some sawdust, and um, and we'll have fun together. Um, so there's a lot of joy around that. And um, and I've got another son too, who's um, who you know we haven't had any, or well, I haven't had any real contact with him for um, 11 years and so there's a lot of sadness around that and um, and, and somewhere along somewhere along the line I just keep on doing what I need to do for me and um, so and even though you know and, and with the younger son he's still in my prayers at night and um, I wish him well on his journey and um, and detached with love uh, love for him was I in the past I used to I'd detach with bugger off or go away or detach with distance as he'd, he'd leave but, and today um, so a lot of joy and and some deep sadness but um, if I, I just need to do what I need to do continue to keep my head where my hands are and just live in this one day mm. And uh, Rod, sorry, if you could uh, give yourself some advice when you're at the peak of your drinking, you may not have listened to yourself if you could, but uh, what what do you think you would say? Oh, God, oh. <laughs> I, I I'd have no advice for me. I'd um, and I I yeah, I I don't know. I'd um, he'd yeah yeah, really difficult. I I. Don't have any um, any any response to that really. It's a bit of a loaded question. Yeah, yeah I, I don't because <laughs> I because I, I just drank. I didn't think really. I didn't. It was just what I did. It was like air. It was like oxygen. And I I I I, I didn't think about it. It just happened, and um, I was just so so consumed with me and what I needed to do. Well, the, my disease consumed me, and it mm. grabbed me by the throat, and I wasn't going to let go. And um, and I, I didn't have a problem, so I wasn't going. You know, I wasn't looking for any help. No, no. Yeah. Um, we before the show we were talking about the fact that you're also involved with Alan and family groups. So do you want to talk about why you got involved with them? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, at at the time, um, I was in a, a business partnership with a chap 
who um, I'd known for from high school and also from we we had attended the same church um, a fellowship um, during our teenage years and and we'd gone separate paths in our work life and um, but we'd come together um, and we started a, a business partnership where we bought a com- organization and we were there and and um, and a couple of years into that partnership he um, found his um, found you know, um, um, drugs and and he was spending more time in recovery in uh, rehab than he was in the business and I was working in the business 80 hours I wasn't telling my wife what was going on and I was going absolutely mad and I'd been in um, in recovery myself for about eight years and I was going absolutely crazy and a good friend of mine who I'd known for some time she said to me do you think that the Al-Anon family group may be able to help you deal with um, you know, this chap and and also at the same time, um, you know, um, my son was, um, you know, he was um, causing us some disturbance. And and I, I kept rebutting and saying, no, what would those Elmon people know? Anyway, at the promise of a, a nice cup of coffee and a cake, I went to my first Elmon meeting. And, and that, I've got to say today, that was the best thing that I've I've done, apart from getting into recovery myself. The next best thing I've done was go to Al-Anon because that's been the cream on my recovery. That's where I truly learn that the only person I can have any influence over is me, and I need to look after myself. And so I'm a, a very grateful member of um, Al-Anon as I am of um, in AA, and um, and both both have played their significant role in my recovery. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that's a good thing that the AA deals with the obsession with the alcohol, and Alan on the obsession with people yeah. trying to fix a relationship or fix a person or stop them or control them, whatever it is to. Yeah. Make yeah. them see their sense. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I guess the other thing which I can, you know, bring on both sides of the fence is, I can see in, in Alan and my, my fellow members, the confusion is they're not drinking the damn stuff, but they're still going crazy in their own mind, yeah. trying to fix the unfixable, mm. that other person. And, um, and I've got a lot of terrific you know, friends in, in both fellowships who... Who I can share with them things which are really deep, deeply guarded, and you understand how I feel without any judgment. And what a great gift that is yeah. to have that yeah. uh, ability. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, if anybody would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can phone them in Australia on 1300 222 or jump online at aa.org.au for more information on recovery and the available meetings. Uh, well, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Rod for sharing his alcoholism recovery story with us and talking about how Alcoholics Anonymous and Alan helped in his recovery. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Bill. Been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when Anne will be talking about recovery from various addictions and compulsions with Richard. Uh, coming up next, we've got Balamois, the spirit of Wah, 
hosted by Uncle Telgum Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco in the spirit of wah on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Uh, this is, that'll be a pre-record, actually. So thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.